So Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say you've sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash? I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments. I've been to professional tournaments. And you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to them. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. I think you nailed it. Is there anything else you, you might want to add? But I think you, you nailed it. That is, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. Because <laughs> I'm in like with hope. I've met Hope so many times and I got into a little bit of conversation, but listening to that conversation you had with her, just, she's just a squash through and through person. And I don't know how many listeners you get, but it doesn't matter. It's the fact that people can now relate to Hope as this person. Hopefully they're going to do that with me. I'm sure, because I'm quite a private person, I'm not, I've never been a person who hung around the squash circle of people, but when I do, I've got some very good friends and they will probably know me, but there's a lot of people who saw me at junior tournaments and a lot of my juniors were top players in the country. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great way of bringing some of the personalities from squash. I hope you can do some with international players as well, because it's going to you know, increase your audience. I definitely have aspirations of if I could snap my fingers and what would I have accomplished is, is almost interviewing anyone with a connection to the sport. So my longevity in this is I'm looking at this for 10 or 20 years and where can I get to in that period? But yeah, I'm mindful of the cross-pollination of different people I want to get involved in. You know, right now, more within my, my comfort zone is, and it's a pretty wide net of just people who are involved in the sport in the United States, just because I'm very familiar with that. But even there, we've had so many different nationalities covered. So if you want to know who I was just talking to, you just have to ask yourself one simple question. What does the Yankee Stadium, the Pepsi Center in Denver, and the University of Pennsylvania all have in common? Well, it's someone from the squash community, and that's Lee Witham. He is the CEO of ProSport LED. And as you might have heard, we recently announced that they are our first ever sponsor of Squash Radio. We couldn't be more excited to have another passionate squash player who wants to help others share their story. So you'll hear more from Lee during this interview, but let me give you some quick context. Lee is someone I've known for almost 15 years, and he is widely respected for his depth of knowledge, his passion for the sport, and getting the results that you want. He has branched out from squash in many different businesses, and today you'll learn more about him his journey, and how he approaches the world of lighting and squash. We hope you enjoy our conversation. What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey there, squash fans. Welcome back to Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley, and we're very excited to bring you another episode today. And we have Lee Witham with us, originally from Oxford, England, but today calling in from Spain. Welcome to the show, Lee. Thank you, Connor. I'm excited to be here. So. If you're at a cocktail party and you're just meeting someone for the first time, what's the one or two sentence that you'd use to describe who you are and what you do? I would say that I've come from a, a sports background and I've been attracted to the lighting industry as I feel that it was needing help. And, and I'm looking to improve lighting for everybody, for the player, for the fan and for the facility. And, and I feel that I have the right connections to enhance the game, TV, and like I said, the fan experience. And of course, because you're on this podcast, you come from a deep squash background, and we're going to really dive into that. But to start off this podcast, you are, like you said, involved in the lighting business, which was fascinating for me to learn about because you realize just uh, how prevalent lighting is and talk a little bit of, at a high level, the different types of lighting businesses you have, because you, you cover such a spectrum of types of lighting. Yeah. So originally Norton LED was born in 2013. and That was focused on office buildings, military setups and things like that with, again, the office user in mind. And over the years, ProSport LED developed as a brand for our sporting products. And the main focus there is everything from filming, playability, and working with some of the top 
technology companies in Korea that provide for Samsung, LG, and also wireless technology companies. And so we have quite a wide gamut of technology on available to us. So I think we cover most bases, but recently, the last five years, it's been mostly sports-based. And I know that you and I have talked about this, but I'd love for you to describe what makes your lighting from, say, your the other industry-available lighting different. We are just very specific to the market. Uh, you'll find that a lot of lighting products try and cover a lot of different areas. They could be lighting a warehouse and trying to also light a sports hall. We are very focused on the application. So if it's for squash, that product is only for squash. And um, the same for indoor tennis, outdoor tennis, stadiums, arenas. If we're doing an ice hockey rink, for instance, we can change the, the, the temperature of the light because there's more reflectance from ice. So everything we're doing is very specific to the sport in hand. Now, I can imagine that seems like more work and more effort. So why do you take that approach? It's more fun. It's something that I've always been interested in is getting into the details of things. And that's why I was a coach to start with is trying to figure out why people hit a ball a certain way. I'm obsessed with efficiency in anything. I'm a fan of things like F1 car racing because that's the optimal level of efficiency and power output. And, and I find it more interesting to delve into the details of a sport and like this basketball, where are most three-pointers taken from on the courts. So all those stats, the whole thing is very interesting to me. I, I know. And you said you've been now operating this business for how many years again? So we started in 2013. And in that period, which is less than 10 years, you have already worked with some really big names. I'd love to spend some time going through just one or two examples of that. But quickly, if you had to give a quick shout out to a lot of the projects that you guys have done, let's quickly run through the gambit. Well, I guess we start at the very beginning. The first stadium that used our products was uh, Safeco Field, which is the Seattle Mariners. The Yankees then played at the Seattle Mariners and liked the lighting and said they wanted it too. And then we go to the Portland Trailblazers. We worked on their gym to start with indirect lighting. And then you go into the Pepsi Center in Denver, where I mentioned you have basketball on show and ice hockey. And so there was a different types of lighting required there. Last year, we did Athletic Club Bilbao, which is the first stadium to ask for 2,000 lux, so the amount of light going for TV broadcasting. And that was mainly because it was um, a, a stadium that was going to be used for the European uh, football championships or soccer championships at the semi-final stage. So yeah, that was something we used a high CRI so that your natural colors come out. The, the local club wears red, so that really showed up well on TV. And then we've done UPenn last year as well. Just recently, Dartmouth College. So again, the spectrum is, is very wide. And most recently, the Rafa Nadal Tennis Academy is something we've been working on to come up with some ideal solutions for serving. So getting it very specific to what the customer is uh, requiring. So let's go through that a little bit. And if you don't, if you don't want to use a specific project name because of confidentiality, that's totally fine too. But if there's a way that you can pick the project type that you worked on and then how you guys went through it to solve the customer's needs. So let's start um, with the New York Yankees. So one of the main problems in stadiums is that excessive light to the field. And obviously that makes it very difficult to catch a ball or hit a ball. So what you will find with the Yankee Stadium, there's very little lighting behind the, the batter. And that also means that when the batter is hitting the ball, the catcher is not seeing light either. So all the lighting is cross-lighting. And so with that, you will not see shadows because we're eliminating certain shadows with lighting from the other side. So the fan experience is very good because they see everything and it's the right fit. So the TV broadcaster likes it because they can see without shadows. The depth perception is ideal because there's no shadows. And one of the other things that was required for the Yankees is that our driver technology in that we, can, we allow 1,500 frames per second with filming. So obviously that's very important with baseball that when you're doing your slow motions, you can actually see the spin of the ball. 
So there's a lot of detail there. And not only that, correct me if I'm wrong, with slow motion is sometimes you can see at the different frame rates, they have different lighting consistency. So this provides more of a uniform lighting consistency. Yeah, you'll find that this is quite new technology. Even some of the bigger sports clubs in the world, when the world, when they start showing slow motions, you get that flicker effect. And that's because the frame rate is, is too slow. So yeah, that, that's something that's going to be changing dramatically in the next sort of two to five years, I would say, with lighting. It, it really assists with uh, the cameras and we need to interact with the TV broadcasting companies to better that too. And walk us through a little bit about, let's use the hypothetical of a new sport. So what's a sport that you, you currently don't provide lighting for? Uh, badminton. Is one sport. We've had a, a lot of interest from India recently. And so we're working on the ideal setup for badminton. And this is what I found fascinating. You're someone who really dives into the details. And what I think, what it ends up delivering is a great product to the customer. And it's seemingly simple. But I think that there's a tremendous amount of complexities involved to get to that level. So walk us through quickly, if you're talking with a, a facility, let's just say in Texas, how would you work with them? So we need to understand the parameters of the facility, ceiling heights, colors used, reflectiveness of floors, all these kind of things assist or decrease lighting. And so you cannot just put in lighting and hope for the best. So a lot of that will be down to photometric reports and the inputs being accurate. So if someone says we're building a badminton facility in Texas and uh, they tell us that the ceiling height is 18 foot high and it's actually 26 feet and we put our lighting in, there's a massive difference in, in light output on the court. Shadows, all these things uh, change completely because the inputs are incorrect. And what would that be? Uh, so if I'm a, a badminton player, what's uh, and the difference between a successful project and what you just described of it not being ideal, what would I experience as a player? So <laughs> it's early days at the moment, but I watch a lot of badminton on YouTube. I watch the Olympic Games. I've watched the Asian Games. And I try and understand where the shuttle is going to be most of the time and where players are hitting from, at what heights. And so what we've looked at now is that the lighting is not above the court or behind the court, it's parallel to the tram lines. And we direct the lights. At the moment, we're looking at about 20 degrees towards the court and with an edge-lit light, so there's no direct LED exposure. That sounds like the solution, the best-case solution, right? At this time, yeah, we need to do tests and run through a few pilot programs of different applications. And at the end of the day, the professional player or coach needs to approve this rather than the, the guy running the place. <laughs> so if I'm in the middle of a match and I'm going up and I'm going to hit like an overhead smash in, in badminton, what would I experience with your lights versus a competitor? Your focus is going to be primarily on your, the shot in hand. You don't want to notice light you're playing the game and that's all you're focused on you don't want any distractions and if a light is overpowering your eye will naturally be drawn to it so now your timing is being affected and your focus is not quite as good as it could be i can imagine badminton is a good example of just a very fast sport where you have to make so many decisions very quickly so i can imagine just even those small edges there of what you're talking about with the lights being in your eyes or not that could have a, a an impact on performance there's the, the impact on performance. There's the, again, there's the, the replay aspect. There's the energy usage. If it's a club with 20 courts, you're not going to be putting in high wattage fixtures because you know, most of the, the reason people are going to LED initially is because they want energy savings. That's a, a given at this stage with LED. But the main thing for us is the, to check as all the boxes but, and allow the game to be played and, like I said before, keep everybody happy. A lot of what we just talked through was more of the, the technical details, I would say, and then the impact on the potential play. But ultimately, when you're talking through this with a customer, there's a few key decision makers that you need to really be in contact with and help them understand this. So what are the advantages that you share with them in order to help get a deal to be successful? I guess it's like going to a restaurant. We, we give them a menu of 
things that we think they would like, and then they come back to us, and, and it could be a budgetary situation where they've got $20,000 to spend on a court, or is it 20000 on a facility? And we give them our priority list, which would be first using indirect lighting, non-glare. Again, if you have flicker on from a light, your pros teaching or people on court most of the day are going to have eye strain and things like that, really. And so the flicker is something that people do not realize exists in LED lighting. They always think it's related completely to fluorescent lighting. And it's down to the driver technology again. And so, uh, like I said, we do 1,500 frames per second, but we have a very good company behind us providing these drivers. And so if that driver is not going to hold up to being used up to 12 hours a day for five years, you're going to be getting into maintenance costs. So renting a lift can be anywhere from 300 to $500 a day. So you don't want your lights breaking. So there's you're going to give them the menu of, what's out there and uh, very often people go with everything because they realize after speaking with us that every aspect is important. You also had to describe, and I'd love for you to, to share with the listeners, that you guys enable at the fixture level a Wi-Fi connection. And so talk to me about what that can do from a yeah. the facility side. So energy savings, again, really, it can be affected. We have sunset settings, sunrise settings that can work on timer-based stuff. So everything's documented pretty much on Google. You can figure out when the sunrise is going to be in Boston, and then you can set your timers that you incrementally increase the lighting by 10% every two minutes, and the same with sunset. So there's a lot of variability there. With the Nadal Tennis Academy, the lights that are closest to the server's eye, we can dim, meaning that we have Wi-Fi control over each individual fixture and not just the court or the facility. So we can go down to 200 separate items, zones, that we can control with our Wi-Fi Zigbee setup. So we have, uh, again, like I said, the wireless um, communications company is allowing us to do that. And we're way ahead of the game on, on that aspect of controlling. So what you just described, let's give an example of how many fixtures are there on a tennis court? It depends on the, how good it is. But if you go to somewhere like the Dell Tennis Academy, you're going to have uh, 12 fixtures on the outside outdoor courts. So 12 fixtures per court. And then you're saying that you can adjust not the entire light setting, but an individual fixture. Is that correct? Individual fixtures are control, yeah. So there's something right. called a Zigbee uh, wireless controller within each fixture, and that has an IP address. And so we can then adjust that manually or with time or any way you want to do it. Really, The umpire could dim the interior lights by 30% when the serve changes side. And there's a, a lot of options here. You want to keep it easy enough for people to understand as well. And you said there's, it sounds like there's some automated features that you can pre-program, but if you wanted to control it in real time or day of, how, did, how would someone do that? We have a few options in that some of our fixtures, especially the squash and indoor fixtures, interact with a Samsung app. So you can do everything on your phone through a laptop, or it could be on a desktop within the main office at the club. So there's a wide, we were joking recently with a club in Sweden that I said, you can be in Marbella. And you can turn the lights off on court nine if you'd like it. He said, that's just a very bad idea. When I'm in Marbella, <laughs> <laughs> I like a tequila or two. <laughs> he said, this could get uh, to go in the wrong direction very quickly. <laughs> but it's there if you want it. It's there if you want it, yeah. And I'd like to pan out a little bit because as you've just talked through fairly quickly, just how many different sports you're involved in. And I'm wondering... And you could say this is impacted by COVID or not, but you must have so many industry insights. And I'm wondering if any are over the past couple of years that have risen as top of mind to you that you could share. So are there any sports industry insights or trends that you're noticing? Everything's going towards broadcasting, uh, whether that's live streaming on the internet. Again, like I mentioned many times, slow motion filming, not just for viewing for the fans, but also for coaching. That uh, a lot of coaches are, are wanting to see 
the way a ball moves. Let's say if a, a goalkeeper is kicking a ball out, what is the ball doing by the time it gets to the halfway line? What spin is on the ball? So the, like I've said before, that the F1 is the pinnacle of details. And so we're seeing that in sports now, whether it's the coaches are wanting to get more and more data information, and we're able to provide that. And, and that's where everything's going. I, I think in general in life is getting data. And, we're, and, and lighting's probably been the last to the table. So we're aiming to do that with sports. So prior to seven years ago, what was your knowledge base of lighting? So lighting, not so much, but sustainability, quite in depth. What do you I, mean by that? In that going back probably 13, 14 years ago, I was very interested in uh, passive house construction and uh, net zero houses. And so every aspect was something I would read about. And one of the things that interested me the most was lighting and that everybody had been stuck with fluorescent or incandescent bulbs and had no choice. We all knew there was flicker problems. We knew it was bad as giving people migraines. Yeah, it was the best energy saver. So we all dealt with that. And so it was my background in reading about sustainability for, we're talking probably, I was living in Germany 25 years ago. The Germans were probably the first to start thinking about recycling and sustainability. And recently being in Stuttgart, even the airport has a grass roof, <laughs> solar panels. So that's where the interest was sparked. And, and then I went into building a house with the passive house qualities. So making an yeah, airtight house. You, yeah, I was going to ask, what does that mean, passive house qualities? So you're trying to make the house airtight so that the people think of suffocation when you think of that, but uh, heat and air exchangers, so bringing in fresh air when it's not fresh or been hanging around too long, it's, it's moved out of the building. And so it's just managed better. And so heat's going out of windows. So understanding all those aspects to how a house functions is very important. And, and it's not just a house and people think that's okay. We have a little bit of a draft under the door. That's heat going out and you're paying for it. So that's how it all started for me. I'm a huge fan of architecture, more modernist architecture. So yeah, that's how it all started. And then LED, LED lighting led on from there, really. And how did you educate yourself on these topics? Really just reading. Sundays for me are my day off. And we had a house upstate New York. And Sunday would be mostly, Sunday afternoon would be reading. And my main subject is architecture, efficiency, design. I'm also fascinated by cars and car design. And that was down to... Uh, meeting a bunch of guys from English guys that work for Mercedes-Benz in design. And then as soon as I got talking to them, that sparked an interest in cars and, and Pininfarina, Pininfarini, Stevenson, all these different car designers. These are things I got interested in, again, getting into the details of things and understanding what the main focus is here and how to make it more efficient. And what do you think was that you crossed the threshold from going from learning about net zero living, LED lighting, but what made you cross the threshold from just reading about it and learning to then wanting to start a business in this area? Um, so my wife and I had a business in Manhattan for a number of years, which we sold 10 years ago, actually maybe 11 years ago and, and had the house. And, and I've always thought that with squash, that it's only going to last for so long. And so it been a year or so in thinking about it and what direction did I want to go and sustainability was something architecture unfortunately I'm not smart enough to get into that but the sustainability was something was very attractive and felt that it was something that I could add to as well it wasn't just something of buying and selling something it was something that I felt that uh, yeah I could bring value to and if you had to reflect on how do you feel about those past 7 years I would say that it's just every day I, I wake up and can't wait to get into my office <laughs> and think about the next project or something. Even checking in with past projects and getting feedback 
on what we've done. And, and the customer really uh, appreciates that too. So it's, it's taking, up, taking care of each project, even though it may be five years ago, seven years ago, and, and looking forward to going to work every day. That's the, the way I live my life. And I'm sure going into starting this business, sometimes we know the challenges that are ahead of us. And running a small business, you're wearing almost every hat there is. But what are the challenges that you weren't quite expecting that you've now had to learn? The bidding processes on with dealing with bigger companies. So when I'm a very obviously a very small company with some very good products, and I think a lot of people tend to go to the easier option. So whether that's a big electronics company because they've heard of the name. And, and I think people in January don't want to do the research into what they actually need. Amazon, uh, Home Depot, these are go-to places because you feel that they have everything at a good price. Is it exactly what you need? If you're looking for a light over your, your dining table, does anybody really think about what do I need there? I can tell you now, I've seen many a dining table with the wrong color Kelvin, of, uh, so temperature of light. And so it's just that little bit of research will get you the best product. And generally, when people get to us because they've looked for these things, uh, we get calls from all around the world. I've recently been dealing with a, a tennis club in Oman uh, because they've heard about Nadal. So it's, the customer needs to do a little bit of research. And unfortunately, a large percentage of people just go to the bigger companies because they feel they must have the products. So during this quick break between games, we're going to quickly thank our sponsor, ProSport LED. And this is a unique episode because we're taking a break from talking to our sponsor to talk about our sponsor. But since this is already happening, let's talk LED lighting. You probably don't even think about lighting, and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that ProSport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again, and back to our show. So let's rewind the clock a little bit, because as you said, and part of the reason why you and I know each other is our connection via squash. And let's talk a little bit about your background in squash and what the steps that you took to get to start in Northern LED. So go back to the roots of your squash career. Like most kids, I started off doing clinics at my local club. And I didn't actually have the head coach approach me, but the number one squash player in the club came up to me and said he'd like to coach me for free twice a week and see what would happen after six months. And within How one old year, were you I, here? I was 13 at the time. I was a fairly decent football player, soccer player. So, and I played badminton at school. So I was able to hit the ball backhand and forehand immediately, whereas most kids tend to struggle with that. Yeah, and within a year, I was uh, Oxfordshire County champion under 14s, and I went on to win every year until under 19s. And so, and recently, I actually I dis sort of disconnected with my coach because he moved away, but I met him last year after 30 years, and just told him how grateful I was for his uh, advice and putting me in the direction of squash because it's been very good to me over the years. Not to jump ahead, but as you said that, I wonder, you ended up coaching for a tremendous amount of years. Did that have an impact that the same feeling that you felt from your coach there that you wanted to pass on to others? Actually, it was, I, I started off trying to be a professional squash player. I played the, the pro tour for two, three years, but I had some pretty bad knee surgeries, iliotibial band injuries. And so in three years, three surgeries uh, and decided that maybe this is not for me. And, and I got offered a, a, I got given an opportunity in Stuttgart, Germany to coach and study. And, and that's how I really got into the coaching. But at that time, I was just passing on information I'd received from my coaches. And, and that's the way it was going. And I was just learning as doing. 
And it really kicked into action. I briefly went back to the UK and did a, a coaches seminar with uh, David Pearson, who at the time was the, the national coach of England and coach to many of the top players in the UK, including Peter Nichol. And this guy just blew my mind. He was so fascinating to listen to regards to technique, movement. He, he was so advanced that I was right, okay, I've got to do this. This is something I'm really interested in. And again, it was the details, I think, that he brought to the game. And uh, yeah, and having spoken to him, he said to me, he said, in the US, there's uh, quite an interest in squash at the moment. I think uh, you're going to bring some value to the game over there. What, what and, year was that? Oh, wow. Now you're testing my memory. I would say I've been in the US for 22 years. So I guess... 23 years ago, without naming, giving away my age. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, and, and it went on from there that I got a job months later with a guy called Rob Krizek at the Hartford Golf Club for just for a short stint and working with him. And the enthusiasm for squash at that time was just incredible. Anything I said was just everybody just took it and was like, it's gospel. <laughs> and, uh, well, and, and for context there, there was a big divide within squash United States in terms of hardball versus softball. And yeah. so 1993 was that transition, which you really um, officially made by, I would say that the, the highest level impact was college squash switching over. And therefore you were really teaching the first crop of juniors that would yeah. have experienced softball only. Yeah. Exactly. And at the time, I would spend my Friday afternoons at Taft School, who were national champions. And yeah, uh, not, Peter Frew. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not because of my making, but I would go down there and see these kids and work with them. And just the energy levels were just so high. And no, and I, I coached kids from five years old to 75-year-old gentlemen. And they all wanted to know how to hold a racket, how to move, and it was exciting. And, and the next summer for me was the most pivotal time in my squash career that Rob had organized a, a squash camp at Luma Shafey School, and David Pearson was the head coach. And I spent 12 hours a day with David for the, pretty much the whole summer. And it changed the way I think about squash. And, and at that time, actually, Paul Oceante was the, the other coach working with us. And uh, yeah, I left that camp. And uh, a few months later, Paul called me up. He said, there's an opportunity for a pro position in New York City. And, and I said, which club? I was unfamiliar with most of the clubs. He said, at the Princeton Club. And I went down and I got the job there. And uh, yeah. And then took all my coaching ideas and onto the court. And, and I'm fortunate enough to have a, a, a young girl called Emily Park, who was 12 years old at the time. And I was just throwing all these ideas at her. She was almost like an experiment for me. And she ended up being number one in every age group and went to Harvard at the end of her junior career. So, uh, yeah, it, it was an exciting time. I remember back around that time that there were very distinct coaching camps, so to speak. The open stance versus closed stance was a, a hot topic back then. But if you had to boil down, and what were some of your coaching philosophies that you were trying to impart on, it could be juniors or adults if you distinguish between them, but what were some of the coaching philosophies you were trying to impart? I, I think using your personality on court. One of the things I would say about my coaching philosophy is be yourself, but be disciplined. And, and when you do that, you'll find your game. And so I don't think any of the kids that I've coached off of conveyor belts coaching theory. So if someone's a little bit bigger like myself and uh, heavier, but also strong, you're going to play a different game to someone who's very lightweight and nimble around the court, who's going to take the ball in very quickly. So I would try and give them as much information as I could and then say, this is yours now. This is your journey. I'm here to assist you and let's see how far we can go with it. And that could be a guy who plays squash on a Sunday afternoon and just wants to get the serve back. What do you want to do when you get the serve back? What, is he a person who just wants to put the ball away or does he want to play the longest rally on his, in history? So it's, the personality comes into it. 
And during your time in coaching, there's a lot of, I would say, transition that was going on within the sports in the United States. And you, like many other coaches, had a front seat ticket to all of that. What would you say are just some of the biggest differences from back when you started to now? Information, available information. It's one of those things where I, at that time, I remember reading a story about Thierry Linkow. So it was the top, it was the number one from France that he lived on a, a small island and watched, used to watch videos of Jahinga. You can do whatever you want now. You can find 10 best shots from the tournament of champions. You can do whatever you want. Uh, it's just the interest level. Back then, we were just searching for any kind of information. One of, one of the interesting things for me, going from a small town in Oxfordshire, was this is actually quite a funny story that our club used to be a uh, cinema and it got converted into a squash club. And next door was the biggest recording studio in the UK. So we used to get pop bands coming in, recording Phil Collins and people like that. And I was on court practice one day and these guys came in and said, can you hit with us for a few hours? I said, yes. And they said, oh, we'd like to sponsor you. And they paid... Oh, for wow. all my they paid for all my travel expenses and I used to go down to a club called Cavisham Squash Club and that's where Rodney Martin, Sarah Fitzgerald, all those guys were there training with a guy called Mike Johnson who's now in Vancouver and, and that again was something that inspired me and I think what we need and what we needed at that time was some inspiration or we had to go and find it. Now you have everything available to you so it's a lot easier now I think but you had to have quite a, little, a lot of drive back then to really want to succeed. Well, conversely now, would you say a challenge is that there's almost too much access to information? I do. I think uh, it's, it's, it's a political kind of thing to get into, but it seems that everything is a little bit too easy. I'd like to see more desire from not just juniors, but people in general to show, again, show their personally, show some kind of direction towards something because we're just so exhausted with information that we can't focus on anything. And so, yeah, I, I think that's where we need to go is start making some decisions in life and, and sticking with them. The role of a coach and the impact, and I think if you're to take, whether it's junior squash or high school squash, college squash, or just even being a teaching professional to your members, they really are very impactful roles. And I know we talked about your philosophy, but what are the ways that you looked to help guide whoever you were helping, whether it's coaching or your members in terms of them, just trying to make the sport enjoyable for them? How do you like to design that? I, I would say that a lot of people like getting things right. And, and that's where the enjoyment comes from. And so when they do get things right, encourage them. And, and when you give the encouragement, the confidence level goes up. And it's trying not to be too hard on people when the personnel is not ready for that. So as a coach, you've got to have a feel for the person and understand what they can and can't take and what their goals are. So you can't be a coach going in there saying, look, if you're going to be number one in the country, then you need to be doing this and this. And the, and the kids just picked up a squash racket six months ago. So you've got to nurture that talent and be very mindful of who you're dealing with and not try and achieve your own goals as a coach. And, and I think the fun will come out of it when you get that right. One of the things I know with the company you've been building with Norton is you are looking to give back to the squash community. And one of the reasons why I'm sure you're doing that is you probably felt as though the squash community was there for you. Is that fair? I don't assume anything, but uh, I, I would like to think so, yes. So, but, and you've shared some of the stories with me in the past, but there have been some almost life-saving moments where the squash community rallied for you and I'd love for you to just tell one or two of those stories. Well, I can go back to a point where when I left the Princeton Club, I had a pretty bad car accident and where I fractured my spine and broke uh, discs in my back and separated my hip. And was out for two years. And, and a lot of people knew that, not a lot of people knew that I'd had the accident, so I'm quite a private person. But uh, when I did go back to the squash community, they were very open to integrating my coaching again and taking lessons. And so one of the things about coming back to squash and coaching, after two years, I applied for the job at Westchester Country Club. 
And it would have been very easy for them to say, you've been out for two years and you've probably lost a lot there. But they didn't. They, they welcomed me. They didn't even think about it. It was just something that they saw my desire for the game was still there and what I wanted to do. And I appreciate a lot of those things where people could quite easily take the easier route to making a decision, but they believed in me. And so I feel I have to pay back that club as well. And what are some of the ways that you look to try and do that? I'm still a fairly new company. And when we started off, we've sponsored a few players and I would like to be able to get into a tournament sponsorship. At the moment, we're growing fairly quickly. So we're investing in new technology and getting into other sports. And then obviously COVID's come along now, which has stopped everything pretty much. But I feel there's going to be a, a big bump as we get into next year. And I think everyone's going to want to have a lot of fun <laughs> again. And there's going to be quite a lot of investment in sports and facilities. So, yeah. I yeah. Before we get into my quick fire questions that I ask every guest, I'd like to do a quick squash specific quick fire with you. And this is looking back at your 35 years of involvement in the sport and just give, you know, one to two minute answer on each kind of topic. So this is my first time doing a squash specific quick fire, but here we go. You ready? I hope so. Yes. <laughs> first topic is professional squash. What's your one minute take? I think the improvement at the professional level has been amazing. Uh, and I watch it on a regular basis. The tour is constantly trying to improve. The matches are dynamic. I like the commentary with Joe and Joey Barrington and Paul Johnson. Always a touch of humor. Importantly, the refereeing is consistent. I still feel there are improvements needed, and you can probably guess where I'm going. <laughs> but I feel there needs to be a little bit more consistency in the quality of courts. I'd like to see more slow motion filming and an improvement in the lighting. I think sometimes there's a bit too much emphasis on TV production and less on the player interaction with the court and lighting. And that's what I, I would like to see. But the, you only have to go back probably five years and the professional game is, is, is off the charts. And especially the women's game. I, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the women's game is just, I don't, I can't, I watch a lot of sports and I can't remember the level of play improving so much as it has in, in women's squash. And, and it's very, you, you cannot give the argument, I'm not watching the women anymore because that was always something that people used to say years ago in squash because they, were, because they had heavy wooden rackets and stuff like that. It was very tough. But now the games are very entertaining to watch. Completely agree. And I would say every five years, the sport has almost dramatically evolved, whether it's technology. And that kind of goes across even just from sports science. Look at the physicality of all the players on the tour, both the men and the women. And you can notice if you measure every five years, there's distinct changes. But I completely agree. And, and longevity. Mm -hmm. Longevity of players. Yeah. yeah. College squash. <laughs> so I really believe that squash associations around the world should go visit a U.S. college squash match. The only thing that's missing, I believe normally, is there are not enough seats to watch. I remember attending a few Trinity games and thinking, I'll just show up. The match starts in about half an hour. I'll get there 10 minutes before. No seats. And the atmosphere is completely different. And I just feel that I'm not sure that many associations around the world are aware of this. And I think everybody should just turn up in the U.S. for a, a match between you know, Harvard and Trinity or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's something that's going to open their eyes to what uh, squash can be in their country. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the things... The energy is, is palpable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things that is overlooked is the majority of junior squash players in the U.S. playing for themselves week in, week out. And when they get to college, you see this energy from them where they realize they're representing a college. And it's quite a, a mental transition for them. And I've seen kids, they've been playing six, eight years, week in, week out. And they get to college and they're representing their school and very focused. They love it. They, they just get this new dimension to their squash. And the one final thing is I, I keep hearing things about it's a quite dominated sport. I think if you just attend a, a junior squash tournament, you'll see that this is rapidly changing. Uh, and that's a little bit of a, 
someone's not really uh, done their research here. To touch on the college squash, again, I think that's another marker that every five years or 10 years, there's definitely change. But now we just have to look at Ali Farag, who's gone on to be, went to Harvard and become world number one, to say that going to yeah. play college squash is not going to hurt your professional chances. In fact, there's a strong argument to be made that it's going to improve it because the first couple of years on tour are extremely challenging for anyone. So here you can still get high quality matches, getting an education, and then uh, jump onto the tour and quickly cover ground. This is actually, if you, if you think about tennis, this was the trend that would go on. Another famous Harvard player was James Blake, who went to Harvard for tennis, played for two years, and then joined the tour professionally. Um, so Michael Stich as well, the, the German player. At mm -hmm. the time, it was uh, big news that he'd actually just uh, graduated um, college and uh, was going on to the world tour and was playing in the final at Wimbledon. So yeah. it goes back quite a way, but it's definitely a change now. But you also hit the, the nail on the head that if you have been used to only playing individual competitive squash and college squash is really, it's a team sport. And yeah. it's a very, it's a different mindset shift that you have to make. And it's, it goes down to day-to-day -day routines of practicing where you're not just practicing for yourself. You, you need to make sure that your team members are getting better and that you're improving your game. So it's a lot of give and take in that regard. And I think that can translate to the results in, of winning and losing. Exactly. Um, junior squash. Something I have a lot of experience with. Same thing with junior squash. When I first arrived on the scene, I'm going to be pretty blunt, but the, the, the playing level was pretty average at best. Very often, but you're, you you're, you're saying average at best in comparison to the rest of the world. Yes, of course, yeah, yeah. Okay. In that you would see people in the second round of a tournament with a straight arm forehand uh, who was missing serve returns and stuff like that. So, not today is the U.S. is seen as one of the strongest countries in the world when it comes to junior squash. And one of the things that you do see is that the technique levels are there. The, game, the players have been nurtured the right way. And I, the only thing I think the U.S. misses is that they don't get enough international experience. And so that sort of, it's always a bit too big an event when they go into the British Open. But yeah, I think another side to, you, uh, to, to junior squash, it is a little bit, for me, a, a vehicle to get into college. I would like to see a little bit more. I'll give you an example. If I put on a video of the top players playing in the lounge at the squash club, I don't see a lot of interest from players going to watch that. Back in my day, I would study by watching Rodney Martin, Chris Dittmar, Jancha. Whereas saying that, I'd probably have been a better student <laughs> if I'd have spent less time studying squashing and more academics. But yeah, it, it's something that needs to, it's still developing and the balance needs to get there where kids, my feeling is a lot of kids are a little bit overworked with the academics and they don't have a lot of time. So I do understand when they're just going from their lessons straight to somewhere else, but I'd like to see a little bit more interest in, in the history of a sport. Mike Tyson, these guys know the sport inside out. And I think I do as well. And I'd like to see that from more junior squash players, actually students of the game as, as well. Agreed. I, I was late to the game and I, I played at a boarding school and picked up the sport and I really knew nothing of it. I, I was fascinated to learn about other people playing squash. I didn't even know that there was professional squash till probably two years after I'd picked up a racket. And I was like, what is all this uh, junior competitive ranking or what's team? There's a Team USA. So I've been fumbling through the industry for many years and it's been so exciting to learn about all the different varieties of where squash is played and how it's played. And I, I feel somewhat, obviously I was naive back then, and but I think that element was just, I just loved the sport and that's what's carried yeah. me through to today. That um, And within the environment, the first time I played was team squash and that felt an interesting balance between I was playing soccer and so I liked that I could control it myself and however hard I worked on the sport, but it contributed towards the team's success as well. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Refereeing. Always a, a controversial subject. I know it's not going to be easy, but I would like to simplify the rules. I think the rules of squash should be on one page. Although the rules have not changed too much, I do see pro squash referees making sure that players making every effort to play the game and not focusing on the rules and interference and stuff like that. 
I think the level of refereeing and junior squash, not just in the US, but around the world is well known. Simplifying the rules, being consistent with your decisions and making quick decision, decisions will allow the game to improve at all levels. And I think we just need to make it easier to understand because if you go and look at the rules of squash, who even gets to the second page? No, it's, it's not easy. I think uh, the game's going to go forward. People, more people will be interested in refereeing. And the guys who go out there and referee, you've got to hand it to them. It's, it's a bit of a thankless job in most cases. And so for them to get into it and do it, you have to take your hat off to them. But I really feel we need to simplify the rules. Refereeing is its own skill to develop. Just as we focus on our forehands, backhands, and our, and our actual squash game, refereeing needs that same level of dedication to improve. And I agree when I would sometimes describe the rules to other people, there's things that are black and white but there's a tremendous amount of gray in our sport. And I think you're right trying to reduce those gray areas to really improve the game. And if you're a 13-year-old, <laughs> if you're a 13 year old, you don't want to get into those gray areas too much. And so I think it's the, whether it's US squash or the WSF, I think everyone needs to get together and make a, a one-page document. And I think it should be something that a 13-year-old should quite easily understand. So another topic, which is... I would say a pretty hot topic for our sport. And really, I attribute this towards where we are all such passionate squash players that we want other people to experience it. But the courts and the programs have really been in a lot of private institutions or prohibitive. So access to the sport, what are your thoughts? So having lived in the UK and Germany when squash was its most popular and I saw the rise and I saw the decline in, in numbers. And, you know, I saw at the time that everybody wanted to build a squash court and, and make some money from it. And the only ones that uh, really existed were the ones that reinvested and tried to build a, a community within their club. And that was very often led by the squash pro. And that's the way it needs to go. But I think you need to be my, more diverse with the demographic um, that you want to include. You very often see uh, clubs coming up, but they're very focused on junior squash. At the moment, I'm seeing a lot of pickleball and paddle going very well. And these sports, uh, they work for every demographic. As an example, the demographic of, of people over 60 years old is almost non-existent in squash. I'm a real believer in multi-directional movement for people over 60. And if you add in the aspect that you have to react to a ball that's not always going to be in the same location, the, the neuromuscular pathway development improves. So we can attract people at that age to the game by just getting them on court and, and hitting a ball around with them. Yeah. It's the absolute opposite of what most people do over 60 years old, where nearly all movement is linear and with no react, reaction aspect, treadmills, ellipticals indoor cycling, etc. So it, it's something I feel we need to focus on bringing in all the diet demographic. And, and I think we'll have a nice community and people will, will like to belong to a club and rather, rather than just focus on one area of squash. It's a very good point. And I think a lot of times when we refer to this topic, a lot of it is talking about how do we get new players onto the courts or new courts available to new players. But one of the big hurdles you just identified is the ball itself. And I think just as in the US and from the conversion from the 80s into the 2000s where the ball was such a hot topic, I think we need to now make the ball another hot topic about how do we use different balls for different levels of the game or where we're at. And it can make a huge impact on just being able to enjoy and play the game. I give the equivalent and I've picked up golf in the past 10 years and the equivalent is everyone is playing golf from the championship tees. And look at how many different ways yeah. that they design golf courses to make it more accessible. And I think we need to do a more conservative effort in the sport. And I say that where a lot of this comes down to national governing bodies doing it. And we didn't do it at U.S. squash when I was there in, in, a, in, in an effective manner, even despite our wanting to. So I think we can well, that, flip this yeah. and make it more grassroots. I think there's another aspect you could change. This is really just off the top of my head here, but by changing the tin height. If you Absolutely. Could, you, you, we've got it at 17 for the pros, 19, 19 for the regular players. If we could fold that uh, tin height up again and have 38 inches, you've got a three-foot high tin, you're going to play the ball higher, it's going to be the courts then smaller. 
So there's that aspect as well. So you need to uh, look at all dimensions, not just, I think the ball is the obvious one most people go to, but I think changing heights of the tin might be something that's a new invention for someone to come up with. You're completely right. And that was actually part of, um, we would talk about that a lot at US Squash as well. And a lot of it is, despite us talking about it, it's actually going out and making the changes. So we're starting to see different ways and areas for the sport to be played and where hopefully those innovations can come out. Speaking of changes in programs, the Squash Education and Alliance programs or the SEA programs, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, first, I think you really need to take your hat off to, to, to people like Brian Patterson, Iago Cornez, Barrett in Portland and George and all these guys that do this work day in, day out. You, you have to admire their work. It's incredible. The energy these guys have at day-to-day is unparalleled. So that, that's something that for me is going to, again, tie into access to squash courts because I feel that a, a lot of the kids coming from these programs are getting out of college and, and where can they play after that? So a lot of them tend to go back to their club that they learned and uh, but if they move to a different city it's very difficult for them to get access to squash courts so i feel that everything's going in the right direction and fairly quickly in the last two years and tim i feel is the right person to be in charge because he just has this very holistic approach to everything and i I feel that good things are really going to happen in the next one to five years with, with the organization Agreed. And I think um, for me, having been so close to Metro Squash, I've also had a, a unique purview into this. And one of the developments that has happened in the past, I would say five or seven years, is the community squash model in Portland, which was the first one to really do it and establish it. And now it's expanded it's to. Barrett, yeah. yeah. And now it's expanded to four. And I think that is something that is really important for clubs to consider because it is. It provides that inclusive aspect where it's not just about an SCA program or junior squash or adult squash, but it really is that cross-pollination of all of those programs coming together. And I think that is really where... And, and it shouldn't be... end at, at college. It, yeah. These guys who want to play squash afterwards, you've got to put something in place um, for them to, to play at. The diversity in my experience with the sport is really what's kept me going and learning. You know, half my, where I played in, in college, half my team was international or more than half of it. And we were representing Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, Colombia. And so it was just eye-opening to learn how squash is played in their country. And, and also the talent, <laughs> they were all the, some of the best players. So it was very exciting, not just as a culture experience, but also from a, a talent experience. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So... Before we go into the quick fire, there's also, uh, what are your thoughts about potential future plans? If, I've, I think I've spoken to you about this before, but I feel that I haven't been on a squash court for 30 plus years and coaching a fair number of decent players, junior level to professional level. Now that I've bowed out of, of teaching, I would love to be able to get a YouTube channel or something along those lines where all my ideas are just accessible for the, every single squash player, whether that's a beginner through to advanced players. It would be great just to be able to get that out and maybe a 10-part series or something. But uh, yeah, that's something that I'm interested in doing. I'm in the process of building a net zero passive house here in Spain. That's something that, again, as you've probably figured out, I'm very interested in. And and keep you know, the product development going. I re- was recently reading about a guy called Will Ahmed, who's a, who's a, who was the captain at Harvard, and he's the inventor of Whoop, the fitness app. And I used to hit with him at the Princeton Club and know his dad very well, Frank. And uh, he inspired me. He, this is a guy who just started with nothing and just said, look, I need to get this going. It needs to be on the market. Uh, and it's sometimes very easy to rest with what you have. And uh, you've got to keep pushing and that's what I want to do with lighting. I, I feel we're, we're still in the first half and we need to work towards development and, and making things more efficient and, and easier to play with, that people don't even notice the lighting's on. Yeah, it's it sounds as if with the respect to lighting that if you've done your job well, people shouldn't notice it. Yeah. Exactly. I have a I have a quick story with actually Nick Matthew who played at the, the Urban Squash program in Cleveland, and I asked him how was the glass court lighting, and he said, "Well, the only compliment I can give is that I didn't even notice it." 
He said, I, we had a great game and uh, never even noticed the lighting. And that's what I want to hear as a lighting provider. We're, we're not the ones who are looking for the uh, recognition. I've enjoyed doing a squash quick fire. I think I might have to do some more of that next time. But now we have another quick fire, which is what I ask every guest, because uh, it's always fascinating to hear how they answer it. So we're going to go into the standard quick fire. Start off with kind of an easy one, which is, do you have a favorite movie or documentary? Uh, I, actually, I really, I'm not a big movie watcher. I'm more of a reader. And so I hope the next question is not, which books it's, do you read? <laughs> well, it, it does go down there. So I'll give you a little bit of time okay. to think about it. But we can go into the next question. And that is, what gets you fired up? Now, this can be in Squash World or outside of Squash World. And it can either be something that is fires you up because it's like very negative or something that's very positive and you lean into. So what gets Lee with them fired up? Well, I can give you both <laughs> sides to that. And it sounds a little bit passive, but travel. I love going into new towns, cities, and seeing how people live, the architecture, the just the history of a city and a country. I'm looking to go back to Prague, Budapest, and Croatia next year. And I travel from city to city in Spain and Portugal. I've covered pretty much most of the U.S., that's something that really gets me interested. I know it sounds a bit boring, but... And then dislikes extremism. I just don't like... I know we've had a few changes, possibly, but too far right, too far left-wing, religious, ultra-nationalism. Why do we have to always choose sides? I, I would just like to see people think about things a little bit more and not just have to go left or right on things. And it doesn't matter what it is, but extremism doesn't really sit well with me. Yeah, without going too deep into politics, but for me, what has really been coming out of the past, let's call it evolving four to seven years, is thinking less about left or right, but really how do we move forward? And yeah. I'm just as puzzled like many others on how to move that forward, but that's where I'm trying to orient my position. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's in the title of the country is the United States of America. Yeah. That's obviously, it's happening around the world, but yeah, it's something that I think it will change. I really believe it's going to change. I think, well, change with action is how it comes about. So yeah. we can't just sit and wait for it to happen. It's We need to be participants. And yeah. there was a comment I heard of, you know, leaning back into what does it mean to be a citizen? And it's not, and back in Roman times, you earned your citizenship through service. And so I think there's an element or you can use JFK. It's not uh, what can your country do for you, but what can you do for your country? Yeah. And that, you know, and that all starts with voting. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. The next question is, are you familiar with TED Talks? Uh, yes. I, when you talk about documentaries, that's something that's probably not over the last year or so, but a few years back, I tended to watch TED Talk pretty often. Great. So the scenario here is you have to give a TED Talk, but it's not something that you could be known for. So in this case, you know, if maybe a few years ago, you could have used lighting, but you can't use lighting now and you can't use squash. So what would be something you'd have to go explore and share in a TED Talk? Well, one of the most difficult things for me, I think, would be able to stay on the red carpet because I tend to march around a lot when I'm talking. But yeah, I, I think one of the things I would like to talk about, uh, and this is probably a little bit too deep, but is balance in life. It's, it's like when people train, you have to give back to your body. You have to stretch nutrition, but also have a dessert, but not too often. I'm a great believer. I don't work a great deal, but when I do, it's quite intense. So I work two to three hours a day in the morning, but enjoy your lunch. Get to know your staff. Enjoy your breakfast. Know what's in your breakfast and just have curiosity. And I think I would, you know, like to talk about that kind of stuff to the, the average person out there. Watch Fox News, watch MSNBC, do nothing, be with yourself, <laughs> meditate. All these things, I believe, is a, a message that people need to get. And that balance it will make your life a lot happier because your body will break down if you push it too hard. 
I uh, completely agree and have tried to, to give that a, a lot of attention over the, the years. And one interesting aspect that I add on to that is balance can be measured in several different ways. So don't beat yourself up on a day to day basis or week to week or month to month or even year to year, right? Like if it's quote your busy season and you have three months of just you're working 12, 15 hours a day, don't beat yourself up, but then realize right. now in the following three months, can you work less? Can you recover? And I do like something that I'm sure you and I both know is when you're trying to get into peak performance for squash, it's about stress yeah. and recovery. And so there, from a sports perspective, we understand recovery isn't just a nice to have, it's a must have. Yeah. And so if we deploy that in our lives, we may not be aware of all the stressors in our life. So that's something to become aware of. And then two, what's the recovery from that? So I love what you said and can't wait to hear the TED talk on it. <laughs> okay, so the last question, are there any books that you would recommend people to read and potentially why? Again, a little bit too deep maybe, but Meditations by Marcus Aurelius is something that I go back to every year pretty much and just either listen to it on audiobook or just read through it. The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek is something that I found quite interesting. And I remember talking about this as a coach as well and having the right approach. What are you looking at doing here? And one other book is a little bit out of left field, but it's a book called The Perfect Practice by David Ledbetter, the, the golf pro. It was something along with meeting David Pearson. And I read his book and I thought, well, this can really be broken down into how the body works and how to get the maximum out of your body yet be efficient. And so it's, a, it's definitely a book worth breezing through. But those are the sort of three I'd say are, are the most interesting. And I think it'd be interesting for other people to read as well. It definitely. I'm familiar with Simon Sinek. He's one of my, my favorite. He's, he's very inspirational and his thoughts are just are brilliant. So I, I definitely love that and would love to read the other two. The, what, the funny story there is that I probably saw Simon as he came out on the YouTube and, and I wrote to him and he wrote back to me at that time. I just thanked him for uh, putting everything in perspective. He's got this very special talent of just, again, in my mind, breaking things down, things down and, and putting them back in place the right way. And yeah, very good guy. Yeah, he's brilliant at those things. And um, as I ventured into business, I've developed what I would call my core pillars. And so Simon Sinek is definitely one of my core pillars in terms of the first book that he started with is uh, Start With Why. And that yeah. was his own journey through it, but also how he went from being an unhappy consultant and arguably on paper, he had everything in life, but why was he still unhappy? And then he went back to the root cause issue of what's his why. So I always love that. As always, Lee, I enjoyed talking with you immensely. And it's great to now have one of these conversations on the record. And thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do for the sport. And it's not lost on us that you're getting deeply involved in all these other sports, but we know that your heart still lies with squash and you're still thinking and looking out for it and as is the squash community for you. So thank you. No, you're welcome. Thank you for approaching me with this. It's definitely something that made me think and did I want to do it? And uh, I'm glad I did. Thank you so much. Till another time. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Then. Bye. Great. Bye. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport, well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun.